0: Well, it's good to be with you, and uh, thanks for having me. Um, I'll, uh, Sam gave a little intro. Thank you, Sam. And I'll give you a little more of an introduction, because I think sometimes it's nice to sort of have a little bit more of a connection. I'll just give you my life story in 60 seconds. Um, so I grew up in Maryland, and uh, not in a Christian home. Got converted in college, a place called Shippensburg University. Um, I grew up just south of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, so right on the uh, Pennsylvania border. Uh, ended up going to seminary in St. Louis, PCA seminary, and uh, from there learned about RUF, because um, I was unfamiliar with the PCA. And uh, RUF is the campus ministry of the denomination, and then I got a job offer. I was single at the University of Missouri, and uh, did that for five years, halfway through, met my wife, um, and we got married. And then uh, after five total years at Mizzou, left to start the RUF at Penn State University, which was uh, really my dream school to do RUF. I grew up a Penn State football fan, and uh, so got to go back to Penn State, start the RUF there. And then left after five years to start the RUF at the University of Minnesota, which is where my, my wife is from. She's from the Twin Cities, and we um, were part of a team that was helping to plant the first church. Uh, in the uh, Twin Cities proper, in our denomination, we were there for seven years, and then left there to start the RUF at U.C. Irvine, 2015, and I got to do that for four years, and then got this new job offer where um, over or overseeing RUF International and RUF Global. So that's a little bit of how I got to be here. And uh, we could move anywhere we wanted to, but we're choosing to stay in part because our girls are. Uh, high school, a freshman, and then two middle school kids, and so they 're not wanting to move again, and so they 're wanting to uh, to stick around and so um, but i 'm quite happy to stay after seven years in Minnesota. that um, was hard, but I loved my wife, so I did it um, i 'm going to give a little introduction uh, before we hear from the word of god uh, i don 't know if you 're a basketball fans and i 'm not a huge basketball fan, but um, I do, I am aware of this story, in 1970, the the two greatest franchises in NBA, perhaps, the New York Knicks and the Los Angeles Lakers, were battling for the championship of the world. First team to win four games would be the champion, and they had the two best players in all of basketball that year. They had Will Chamberlain, famous player for the Lakers, and a guy named Willis Reed, for the New York Knicks. And so it was supposed to be an epic battle, and it was. Uh, two games to two games there in the very beginning. And, uh, and then the fifth game, the New York Knicks won. to go up three games to two. All they needed to win was one more game. But their star player, Willis Reed, tears his thigh muscle at the end of the game, and he's out for the rest of the series. He was the MVP of the league that year. The only person who could slow down Wilt Chamberlain. So the next game, game six, the Lakers steamroll the Knicks. Chamberlain scores like 50 points, 30 rebounds. He's dominant. So the final game is in Madison Square Garden, New York City. And it should be sort of this exciting game seven, but the fans were down because they were about to get crushed by the Lakers and Wilt Chamberlain. And so they go through warm-ups. Uh, The Lakers without Willis Reed, they're just a few minutes before tip-off, and then all of a sudden the crowd starts to erupt, and people start to look around, and they said that the, the, the rafters, the beams were beginning to shake, and so out of the dark tunnel comes Willis Reed but not dressed in civilian clothes to sit on the bench. He's actually dressed to play. Even his teammates didn't know this was a possibility. His teammates are warming up, they stop, they see Willis Reed, and they just stand there looking at each other, beginning to smile. After the game seven was over, Jerry West, who is the logo for the NBA, this other famous player, said, when we saw Willis Reed, we knew that we were dead. Willis-Reed went on to score only four points in that game seven. But when you have hope, when you have hope that gives you confidence, it shapes the way you think, it shapes the way you act. And the Knicks won. They crushed the Lakers, even though Willis-Reed only played sparsely. You now, two weeks ago we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, that our champion came out of the dark tomb, and he is the one who defeated death. And so now we live in the light of the resurrection. So what does it mean for us to live the resurrection life? Well, as you know, in church history, the people of God, the church, begin to move forward. Now, in light of the resurrection, everything is changed. Through the Spirit, with this confidence, we move forward. Knowing one day the ugly will become beautiful. There will be relief and comfort from pain. Hurt will be replaced with happiness. And so, there's so much to say, thinking about the resurrection. I want to focus on one aspect of the resurrection life. I want to talk about hospitality. So I'm going to read Revelation 19, 6 through 9. I would love for you to stand with me. And as I'm reading, I want you to pay attention to the hospitality of Jesus here in this passage for those who trust in the resurrection. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Let's pray. Lord, the resurrection is true. Hope abounds. The game is not over. Our champion is strong and true. Lord, give us the, cor- the courage to live out our resurrection convictions that now everything has che- changed. Teach us, Lord, from your scriptures this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated so part of this new job of mine is to travel around to seminaries so sometimes it's to speak at chapel sometimes it's to help you to class Uh, oftentimes it's recruiting finding campus ministers who will do cross-cultural ministry and it and it brings me back to my seminary days uh 20 years ago uh where i had classes like hermeneutics and new testament and old testament classes and Classes on preaching and classes on counseling. But there's one class that I wish I would have had, looking back now, that I, was not, that I did not have, that I was not taught. And it's a class on icebreakers. Asking good icebreaker questions. Because that's what you do in ministry all the time. You're meeting people that you've never met before, one-on-one, and you've got to come up with Questions. To start conversation in small groups you're leading small group conversations and you need to sort of prime the pump for the group and so you need to have a icebreaker question or whether you're at a wedding reception you need something to engage people one of my favorite icebreaker questions is this if you could design your ideal day money no object what would that day look like what would your ideal day look like what would you do Where would you go? Who would you be with? Would you read a book? Would you go skydiving? Would you go to an exotic island? Maybe go to a concert. Would you go with your family? Maybe childhood friends? Maybe adult friends? Maybe you'd want to do it on your own? I think it's a great question because you get to know the interests, you get to know the passions and the desires of someone. Well, I don't think we need to ask Jesus what His ideal day would be and how He would spend it. Because I think we already have a strong sense of what that day would look like. At the end of the book of Revelation, when God delivers His judgment, when He is making and settling the world so that it is right, the way that Jesus celebrates this is with a wedding to His bride and then followed by the most unimaginably great marriage supper of the Lamb, a banquet, a feast, and Jesus loves to be with his people feasting together, and Jesus' life was a life filled with hospitality, and that's my first point, Jesus lived a life of hospitality. My second point is this, is that I want us to see hospitality as a display of the gospel, And then my third point is I want us to consider hospitality as the church on mission. Okay? So I'll start with Jesus lived a life of hospitality. As Jesus' earthly ministry unfolds, we see many of His most significant ministry events are hospitality events. Have you noticed that before? Where Jesus is taking the role as the host. To start with, just think about Jesus' first miracle that He ever performed. It's a significant event. He's turning water into wine. It's at a wedding where the bridegroom is about to break important cultural rules for a wedding. He doesn't have enough wine for his guests. And of all the things that Jesus could have done for his first miracle, you wouldn't think keeping a party going with wine would be at the top of his list. How about a powerful healing? What about crushing a demon in front of many people? Why not move Lazarus' resurrection? Why not bump that to first miracle? Jesus decided to to show his deity by hospitality at an event he wasn't even the host of. Tim Keller says, Jesus chooses his first miracle to be at a wedding because this was the event he most looked forward to the day when Jesus would be at his own wedding feasting with his own bride and it would be his blood represented by wine that would make his wedding day possible. A second significant event in the life of Jesus takes place during the last week of his life, which of course would be a very significant time in his life. And in Matthew's gospel it takes place right after Palm Sunday. And so we see Jesus giving a series of teaching which essentially serve as a warning to the Israelites to turn from their sin because he's about to go to the cross. And during one of these teachings, it's none other than a parable about a wedding banquet. He begins, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Jesus goes on to warn those in this parable who would reject the invitation, but it's obvious days before his death on the cross, what's on his mind is a wedding, wedding feast and a wedding day where his bride will be perfected. Another significant event is just two days later. It's his very last night on earth. It's Thursday night, which in God's perfect timing happened to be the Passover feast. And if there was ever a last night for Jesus to have, it would be during the Passover feast. Jesus' earthly life's work to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has now arrived, and this Passover feast is truly Jesus's feast. He's the host. He's the one who is inviting, he's doing the planning, he's doing the preparation, he's the one washing feet, he's leading the conversation, he's feeding his friends on the last day of his life on this earth. The the way that he decided to spend the last night of his life on earth was by showing hospitality. And then at the end of this meal, It almost seems like Jesus couldn't help himself, but this is what he says. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's thinking about the wedding feast. And then, of course, the way Jesus has to be remembered by his people until he returns is what? By Jesus hosting a meal. It's the Lord's Supper. We'll celebrate this shortly, but Jesus... He's the host of the meal. It's never the pastor. He's the hospitality giver. He's serving us again. He's the one who has planned and prepared the meal. The occasion in the meal, it's his body and it's his blood. So back to our original question. What is Jesus' ideal day? Well, it's to be married to His bride and then to host what will be the greatest display that the world has ever seen the marriage supper of the Lamb in other words Jesus wants to spend His ideal day with you you are part of Jesus' ideal day if you know Him and if you love Him blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb so why is hospitality such an important part of Jesus' life and His ministry because it's the welcome that all people long for but never get. It's the welcome that all people are looking for. This is my second point. Hospitality is a display or it's a picture of the gospel. Today in our world, hospitality is the welcome that many long for but never get. And it's the lack of welcome that leaves deep scars for people. Perhaps it was personal For Jesus, when he was born, there was no one to welcome him. There was no inn for him to stay in. And when Jesus comes into this world, the apostle John tells us in John chapter 1 that he was unseen and unwelcomed. John chapter 1, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Isaiah 53 tells us that the Messiah was one who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. And Jesus knew the pain of not being welcomed or received into this world. And all people in this world are more familiar with being rejected than being received with hostility than hospitality. Two months ago, there was a woman named Simone Ellis, or Simone Ellen, and she wrote a piece for the Huffington Post just two months ago, And this is what it's titled. I tracked down the girls who bullied me as a kid, and here's what they had to say. Simone Ellen is now in her 50s, and she begins by saying that for decades, she struggled with low-grade anxiety and depression. And she is certain that some of this stems back to her middle school and her high school years, where she was ignored or treated poorly by others. And so some 40 years later, Ellen decides that she wants to interview these classmates, both those who bullied her or were harsh with her, but also those who were her peers. And so through social media, she's able to track down 30 of these peers of hers from those middle school and high school years there in Westchester, New York, where she grew up. And here's what she discovered from those conversations. One woman began the conversation acknowledging to Simone Ellen I was not always nice to you, and I'm really sorry for that. A second conver- conversation with another woman began by the woman blurting out as soon as she got on the phone, I am so sorry. I am so sorry for the way I treated you. But then she went on to explain what her life was like growing up during those years were really hard on her. One cheerleader who was, in Ellen's mind, popular and had tons of friends told Ellen that the girls in her popular clique were so mean to each other that she grew up distrusting women all of her life. It wasn't until she was 43 years of age that she found her first true female friend. Another woman shared how she wanted to be so popular back in seventh grade, and even then she knew that that meant she would have to give up other friends who were less popular to be part of the popular crowd. One woman so traumatized at, at showing up at a middle school dance with a dress. She was made fun of by her friends in the dress. She says, to this day, I still have trouble getting dressed and picking out clothes. And then finally, one woman told Ellen, I always felt like an outcast, like a little brown mouse. Well, I would imagine in some ways that you've had similar experiences. You know perhaps what it feels to be rejected or ignored or to even feel invisible. And perhaps maybe you were that person at some point who made other people feel ignored and invisible. And because sin is separation from God, all of us have some sense of not belonging, of not fitting in to this world of not being welcomed. And this is why hospitality is so powerful. Because it is the longing that all of us have, but we've never attained in this life. Benedict of Nursia, who lived in the 6th century, he wrote a rule or a guide for Western monasticism, which includes a section, very specific instructions on hospitality. In Edward Smithers' book, Mission is Hospitality, he tells us Benedict employed a seven step process for welcoming visitors. So when someone showed up to um, a monastery where the Benedictine rule of hospitality was employed, here are the seven ways of hospitality that someone would have experienced. And I'm going to go through each step of hospitality, and then I'll make a brief comment. And what I want to do is I want to connect hospitality to the gospel, or to say it a different way, um, to the welcome of Jesus. Okay? The first step... Visitors were announced to the entire community when a visitor came to the monastery. And this is significant because the world tells us that you're not significant. But this kind of welcome points to the Gospel and says, you are significant and you're known. Your name is now known to us. Then the second step of hospitality, followed by visitors being announced, was the monks would respond immediately to greet the guests with all the courtesy of love. Now the world tells us you're not worthy of our love or our time, but this kind of welcome points to the gospel and says, you are worthy of love, so we will drop everything to attend to you and to your needs. The third step, the superior and the monks then would pray with the guests to open a spiritual space for the one who needs help the world might tell us even if there is a God he wouldn't be interested in someone like you but this kind of welcome reflects the love of Jesus and says there is a God and this God wants to be involved with you the fourth step of hospitality in a monastery the monks would then offer a kiss of peace to their guest the world tells us our presence is an inconvenience to them This kind of welcome points to the gospel, breaks down physical barriers, and says, I delight and I literally embrace your presence in my life. The fifth step, the monks would read scripture to their visitors as a medicine to the soul. The world tells us that we're beyond help, but this kind of welcome points to the actual gospel and shows us that help has already come in the person of Jesus, and there's no one beyond his reach. The sixth step, the abbot would wash the guest's hands while the monks would wash their feet. And the world tells us, no one would ever care about you if they truly saw just how dirty and broken you are. But this kind of welcome points to the gospel, the love of Jesus, and says we see you for who you are, and we love you as you are. It's rocking here, isn't it, a little bit? (laughs) Alright, final step. Step number seven. Finally, the monks offered their guests a meal, and then they would dine with their guests. And the world tells us that there are no helpers in the world. This kind of welcome points to the gospel and says that the ultimate helper has entered into this world and He provides for our greatest needs, including to be reconciled to God. Now, of course, many, if not all, who came to these monasteries for help, they did not have money to pay for the kindness shown to them. And they were never asked to. They weren't asked to do laundry. They weren't asked to do the dishes. The hospitality was free to reflect the fact that the Gospel of Jesus is free. It can only be received It comes without cost. It only costs the one who gives. Hospitality is a display of the gospel. And hospitality is one of the primary ways that Jesus extended the welcome of God when He was here on this earth. And it's one of the primary ways which the follower of Jesus throughout the history of the church have historically extended the welcome of God. And then here's my third and final point, that hospitality is the church on mission. Certainly, hospitality is something that we should do with other Christians. To welcome other Christians into our home, to fellowship, to pray with them, to get to know them, to enjoy them, is significant. That's how—that's how, part of how the church is built. But I want to talk about hospitality in a different way. I want to talk about hospitality, not fellowship with other Christians, but in terms of fulfilling the Great Commission or ministering to those who were outside of the church, those who were not Christians. Currently, as you know, Christians have an image problem. There's a stigma now being attached to being a Christian. The younger generation is learning about Christianity through social media, through YouTube, through voices that we don't want to represent us. The message is beginning to be distorted. Christians already have or are gaining the reputation of being judgmental, critical, critical, hating homosexuals, the LGBT community, of being those who voted for Donald Trump. And I'm not saying that was wise or that was unwise, but for those who were outside of the church, for many outside of the church, they connect Christians to Trump, and for them, that's a negative connection. The Capitol Hill riots, Bible verses being displayed in D.C., the shootings in Atlanta caused by a serious Christian talk of radicalized Christians will only grow. The black eye of hypocrisy caused by the Catholic priest, sex abuse scandal, Rabbi Zacharias, sex scandal. We are losing our voice. We are losing our opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And what's being called into question is not so much the message of the gospel, but it's the messengers of the gospel. And so the church is going to need to win people over slowly. And I think the way that we're going to do this yeah. is through hospitality. Yeah. Not, not, fi- not Facebook posts, not posters in our yard, but having people into our homes. Going out of our way to serve them. Listening to people, hearing their stories. Laughing with people. Asking them questions. Hurting with them when they hurt. Helping them when they need help. Providing great food and conversation that matters, giving them that kind of hug or handshake that breaks down barriers by sharing our life with them and letting them into our lives. I want to share this is somewhat of a long quote by a guy named Paul Sidner, and uh, um, it's about a paragraph long, but I think it's significant. He says hospitality is one of the primary expressions of the gospel message rooted in the love of God and the love of others that leads to decisive involvement with others. A redeemed hospitality speaks to the physical, social, and spiritual dimensions of a person. This practice radically contrasts with the normal human tendency to treat outsiders and those who are different as unwelcome guests and even non-humans who should be suspected and discriminated against. A redeemed welcome is a two-way street that practices and receives hospitality like Jesus has demonstrated. Here it comes. It functions as an expression of the love of God and love for others. And in this light, hospitality is not an option for God's people, but rather the primary way that God will save the nations. I have several applications to give to you as I come to a close. One is I think hospitality particularly works well in this community in Orange County, when we moved here in 2015, Easter of 2016, uh, my wife and I decided to host people for uh, Easter dinner at our house. So we were inviting, of course, students from UC Irvine, and uh, we were also inviting people from our church. And so we invited 53 people to Easter, assuming that most people had family connections for Easter. Guess how many people showed up? 53 people for Easter, and that taught us this is a different place than where we've lived in Pennsylvania, where we've lived in Missouri, Columbia, and in Minnesota. A lot of people here are, have moved in, and they don't have these deep family connections. And so there is an avenue of hospitality that exists in Orange County that does not exist like this in other places. This is a unique place. You connect that to the COVID isolation that people have experienced. People are longing for more connection than they've had over the last year. Now, I know that there's some embarrassment about living in an apartment complex or in a neighborhood, feeling like you don't know your neighbors. Well, this has given you the opportunity to re-engage with neighbors, to be able to come out and say, man, I wish I would have taken the time to know you before, but now, after this pandemic, you know i want to get to know you maybe you can't have them into your home yet because of COVID, but maybe you're doing things on your driveway your front yard in the local park but now is a great time to re-engage with people who have had their worldview upturned in the last year not just relationally but now where is this world going and i think because of the resurrection because because our champion has emerged out of the tomb Jesus Christ, we have words to speak into that as we love them in a way that they probably have not been loved with that kind of love of Jesus. Of course, you're close to UC Irvine. It's one of the most significant uh, institutions not just in Orange County but across the nation. It, it's it's a great institution. Um, this church has an RUF campus minister there ministering to students, doing hospitality. The other piece, his name is Derek Rishmawi, maybe you, you've met him Rishmau, maybe you've met him already. But the other piece is that there are 9,000 international students from all over the world coming to UC Irvine on the top 20, 20 list of schools in the United States hosting international students. UC Irvine is on that list. And so there are people coming to UC Irvine where we can't send missionaries to. Missionaries to. They're closed countries. But yet, those countries send their best and their brightest to the U.S. And it's an opportunity to do hospitality ministry to those who have no connections. Their connections are thousands of miles around the world. Some of you, um, some of you have the gift of hospitality. It would be interesting and of course we can't do that now, but I'd love to know if you are a Christian, God's Spirit lives in you and God's Spirit has gifted you at least one unique spiritual gift that you are to give away. It's the kind of gift you can't sit on, you can't hold to yourself. You need to give it away. He has gifted you with a beautiful gift. I don't know if you know what it is. I hope you do know what it is. And I hope you're able to use it. And for some of you, you have the gift of hospitality. You need to lead the way for those who are part of this church. One more thing. There's something called safe families. I'll even get very specific. Safe families are Olive Crest. Um, uh, Where I go to church at Redeemer, our church is involved with it. Our family is personally involved. But it's helping children who are in crisis. And so right now we've got a little girl who is with us for about two months. Her mom is giving birth. It's a a single mom. She's giving birth in about um, six weeks. She's in a wheelchair. She is unmarried. She lives in government housing. And so she can't take care of this a 15-month-old little girl. And so we have this connection with, with this mother where we are caring for her daughter, um, but also caring for her. Just yesterday, my wife um, took her around the parks so that she, she could play with her daughter and then took her out for ice cream. And so she is developing a relationship um, so that she can love and extend the welcome of Jesus. And hopefully one day give words to that welcome of Jesus. Maybe you don't have um, maybe don't have a house, maybe uh, hosting someone is hard um, right now, which is okay. Do it together, do it in groups. Even practice with each other if you want to, but I'll even make it even more simpler. Um, hospitality as a question. Just asking someone, how are you, in a way that says I'm really asking to know, that's powerful. A lot of people aren't asking that question. Um, there are some people who have not answered a sincere question like that for years that you might know. And then the second way is hospitality is an invite. And what I mean by that is, hey, let's sit outside at the Starbucks. I'll buy coffee. Let's just check up on each other. Lots of ways to do this. I do think it is the way that the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States is going to see people come to faith. Things are changing. All right, I'm going to conclude with this. It's a fictional story. Uh, It's the story of Babette. Babette was a French woman who lived in Paris, and she was actually a famous chef um, in one of the most famous restaurants in Paris called Café Anglais, until one day she found herself in danger. She had to leave Paris. She needed to get out of the country. She needed to find herself somewhere safe where others wouldn't be able to find her. So she ends up in this small Norwegian fishing town where no one would ever think to look for her. And she's working for two middle-aged sisters. She keeps house and she cooks. And she's this famous chef, but all she cooks for them is boiled cod and gruel, which is like porridge. This family had once been a tight-knit community, a church community, but Babette begins to realize that it's not tight-knit anymore. Years ago... The, the father of these two women, these two sisters, he was the pastor of the church. But now 20 years since the church was thriving, the pastor's dead, the community's smaller. There's a sadness that filled the air when the church would gather, sort of this haunting memory of what used to be. Leaders who were no longer speaking to each other, accusations of theft among the group. Babette was there in this community for 10 years when one day she received her first letter from France. It could only be from just a couple of people who knew that she had left and knew where she was. And it happened to be from a friend, the one who had been renewing her lottery number over the last 10 years. And the news was good that Babette's lotto number had won 10,000 francs. But the timing wasn't so good because These two sisters, who she was working for, were now about to get ready to throw the 100th 100th year anniversary of the church. And so for Babette to leave, the timing wouldn't be good. So she decided to stay, and then she made a request. Would it be okay if I was completely in charge of the feast? The two sisters gave in, and they let her do it. But there was immediately pushback, because the celebration was becoming too extravagant. There would be these boats that would come to the port there in this small town in Norway with boxes of food, and they would take these huge boxes and deliver it to Babette's Kitchen. And so those who were part of this community thought this was way too much, way too over the top. Finally, the day for the celebration came. The entire church community now, which is all of 12 members, come for the celebration. But these 12 were not in the mood to party. There was more silence than there was joy. But the room was beautifully decorated. Babette had been able to come up with expensive china and crystal. She had laid out a rich, dark, red tablecloth with evergreens dispersed along the table, and then finally the food was ready. And it was the most delicious meats that you would ever dream of. Various cuts of steak. There was veal, there was ham, seafood, even the delicacy turtle soup, fresh vegetables that you couldn't get in Norway, truffles, the finest champagne that anyone had ever tasted. And soon, the magic of the meal and the magic of the room began to work its way through this community, and there began to be some small talk, which led to a little more chatter. Soon... There was laughter, and now the entire room was talking with raised voices, melting away 20 years of iciness. And then the story ends with two scenes that are happening simultaneously. The first scene is these old-timers, these 12, are now joining hands, and they've gathered in the middle of the town around the fountain, and they're singing the old songs of faith that they used to sing years ago. And it had felt as if their sins had been washed away. In the second scene, it was of Babette, and she's hunched over, she's worn out, she's exhausted in her kitchen, dishes piled high, greasy pots, leftover food, vegetable trimmings, empty bottles, soiled, stained tablecloth. At some point, the sisters realized that not one of them had said a word to Babette about the meal. They finally return to say, Babette, it was quite a nice dinner. Babette, staring at the dishes, says, You know, I was once head chef at Café Anglais. This going over the sister's head, they say, Well, we will remember this dinner when you're back in Paris. But Babette tells them that she's not returning to Paris now. Her relatives are dead, and it's too expensive for her to return. But the sisters say, Well, what about the 10,000 francs that you won? And then Babette drops the bombshell that she spent every last franc, all ten thousand, on the feast that the sisters had just devoured and enjoyed. And the story ends by saying grace came to them in the form of a feast, a meal of a lifetime, lavished on those who in no way earned it. A gift that cost everything for the giver, but nothing for the one who received it who receives it. And blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I'll return one more time to my question. What is Jesus' ideal day? It's with you. I hope you know that. That's why He came. And that's why He hosts. In a few minutes. And then in eternity. I'll pray. Father, it is good to be with you. It is good to be reminded of good news in a world that often does not have good news for us. I'm so thankful that our champion came out of the tomb and that changed everything for us and for the world. Give us faith to believe. And Lord, as we believe, help us to live. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.